transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the Mojave, and I want to tell you what it's like out here. What it's like out here tonight, right now. I want to tell you about the Mojave High Desert in this best part of the year, the winter months. Warmer than usual these past years, but still the best time. The desert ideal. Oh, you can walk out at midnight because what is that helicopter doing? What's the moon doing? How many super moons and blood moons and blue moons are there these days? Well, I like them all. You can be doing something mundane like taking out the garbage, taking out the recycling, and then you look up at that winter desert sky, the white-blue starlight flickering through that cold desert night. The owls are out, and the foxes, and the owls and the foxes are after the kangaroo rats. These desert creatures that do not retreat in wintertime. The reptiles go underground, resting, remembering. And then it's over before you know it. The winter, the perfect time in the desert. I've already got one of the morning doves up in the dove condo I made a couple of years ago. You see, the doves, well, they aren't the best nest builders. They're ground birds, really. But they try. And the eggs kept falling, and then they try again, and boy, it just got depressing looking out the kitchen window every time you go to get a cup of coffee. So finally, I went out there, and I interfered with nature. With a couple of nails and some twine, I made a little fence up there, up in the eaves, so the eggs would not roll out. Well, there are so many morning doves around here now, it's kind of crazy. And I was thinking, well, that's a weird sight in January, having a dove already up there in the twine nest condo. And I wondered if she or he, I can't tell from the kitchen, I wonder if they were feeling nostalgic about having grown up in that nest. Or maybe having sat up there on eggs for so long and then spent so much time feeding the chicks and teaching them to fledge, to pick seeds off the ground and whatever. Maybe it was just some wintertime nostalgia, bird style. But it has been so warm already up here around Joshua Tree that within another week I saw a couple of doves kind of humping on each other out there in the sage. And well, I guess springtime is here early. Some character down at the swap meet was complaining to me not so long ago about how the liberals had made special computers to trick everybody, or at least trick some people, not enough, into worrying about global warming. And I thought, well, those must be some really special computers that, through trickery, also made it so damned hot all the time. So the same people who could not defeat some mafia character from reality television managed to build a database that caused actual rapid warming of the earth. And you thought those Bitcoin server farms were bad for the planet. 
The last time this particular planet had a colder-than-average year was 1976. The last time there was a colder-than-average month on Earth, it was 1985. Oh, winters used to be cold. I love a cold winter in the desert. The kind of day that starts off around 20 degrees and then hits that perfect 48 or 49 degrees at midday. You can hike all you like, you won't get too hot, and you won't even feel cold out in the winter sunshine. They were still like that, the desert winters, in the early 1980s. Back when I spent any time I could get in Death Valley or the eastern Mojave... In Zabrago, used to get so cold on winter nights, you needed real sleeping bags. Yeah, the kind they make for the High Sierra. New sounds tonight. From our Joshua Tree Soundscape Wizard. Red, blue, black, silver. Hey, you know, it's time to open up the Desert Oracle mailbag. This thing is just getting more and more full. I don't know when we're ever going to get to all of them. We're a little behind in most things. Well, let's do it. Let's see. Dear Desert Oracle Radio, here's an honest question for your Desert Oracle Radio mailbag. I am greatly looking forward to the time when I can explore all the places in the desert that I hear about on your show. Can you please tell me the best ways to visit Joshua Tree in the Mojave Desert responsibly? Darren Roberts. Well, Darren, that is a very, very good question. I appreciate it. There are two basic classes of people on Earth. Those who give a hoot about their one and only planetary home and those who aggressively don't give a hoot. That's really about it. Now, the first thing can be learned. The second thing has to kind of be indoctrinated in you. You have to believe in your heart that the world is ending. The devil is coming back. I don't think he ever left. I mean, that's all that ultimately matters. Which side defeats the other? Because the winner there will determine the fate of an entire planet, the only planet we know about so far, that sustains human life. There are some high stakes involved. Anybody can learn the basics about a place in maybe a half hour of halfway paying attention. Being shown around a bit. You know, it's too bad we don't do that in our parks. Maybe once we get some of those cheery robot rangers who can repeat the same thing a hundred times a day without ever getting weary or frustrated. Step right this way, folks, the cheery robot ranger could say leading everyone through a five-acre demonstration garden next to the visitor center snack bar. These are cactus. Try not to put your dogs or your children or your hands or your face in the cactus. And then there could be a comical robot sidekick who does everything that you're taught not to do so you can laugh at its pain and perhaps learn a little something along the way. So as the robot sidekick is weeping loudly on the side of the trail, pulling cactus needles out of its bleeding rubber forehead, again, 
you make a little note to yourself. Don't do that. Likewise, with other behaviors to avoid, such as all the littering and the killing and removal of the hardy desert bushes and brush to throw into your campfire, even though the sign says don't do that, and stomping all over the open desert, which busts up the microbiotic crust, which is a living network of tiny plants and other such organisms in the crusty top of the desert soil. I mean, after something like the Thompson fire and the terrible mudslides that came with the first big rain up in Santa Barbara, you get a real sense of the microbiotic. The microbe becomes big enough to see. The fire ate up all the ground cover, all the bushes and the brush and most of the forest. All those plants hold the ground together, kill off the plants, and the ground is revealed to be dirt and rock. And down it goes, down it goes, an unstoppable slow-motion catastrophes of churning mud and sludge and logs and boulders and cars and cows, boulders bouncing down canyons and roadways like tumbleweeds, tearing apart houses that had stood there for a century, closing down the 101, washing away train tracks and buildings. A desert flash flood will show you the same forces at work, but I advise you not to stand in or near the wash as it happens because every year in the Southwest, people are killed in desert flash floods. Maybe you'd have the robot sidekick have big knobby tires shoot out of its armholes so that it becomes an OHV or a dune buggy or even a mountain bike and goes tearing through a patch of desert so you can see how the weight and the tires kill all those little organisms that literally hold the desert together. I don't like to use the word literally, but here it is correct. Even a middle school dropout can figure out with the help of a visual aid that running over a strip of desert again and again rapidly kills off the living desert and turns all that crusty soil into plain old sand. And nothing grows there. It becomes rutted and dead. There could be comical music blasting and the robot's eyes would turn into different emojis of shame and horror. And finally enlightenment. Now the robot knows. Stay on the trails. Don't kill anything alive and don't mess with anything you think might be dead, like a seemingly dead little bush in the summertime. If you leave it alone, it'll likely come back with the rain, if we ever get any rain again. Don't mess with rattlesnakes. Don't stick your arms down rat holes. Don't camp in people's backyards. It's easy. It's all easy. A preserve is a place we've set aside to be nice. We've set it aside for company, not corporations. For visitors, for neighbors. You're the invited company. Have fun. Learn something if you can. Enjoy the rare chance to be out in the wild, more or less. And if you're not sure if something's the right or wrong thing to do, maybe don't do that thing right now. You can ask later. You can look it up on your phone if there's any cell service. Maybe the robot will paint one love in green spray paint on a desert boulder and then the boulder falls over and crushes the robot. Goodbye, robot. 
Thanks for your service. And remember that what's socially acceptable is always changing, hopefully for the better. When John Steinbeck buried his trash after camping somewhere on the side of the road, he was doing what was considered the right thing to do at the time. He was not littering. Now we don't bury our trash in a national park or whatever, because we know that is not what we are supposed to do. We bring in firewood if we're staying in a campground where we can have a nice campfire. Basic manners. The best way to come to the desert is to find a place far away, a place where few people visit. Somewhere wild and beautiful like the north end of Death Valley, or up in the four corners this time of year when it's cold and lonely. Find a place where you won't see a lot of other people like yourself. Find a place where you won't see a lot of other people of any sort. There is nothing like spending a whole day and night without seeing a human, waking up to the wind and the bird song, dinner outside over the fire, falling asleep to the calls of the coyote, the voice of the desert. Waking up at 3 a.m. and taking a little walk and not recognizing the position of the stars at that late hour, watching kangaroo rats hop across the wash. Oh, there is nothing better. Spend a week that way if you can, a whole season if you can get away with it. I am somewhat mystified by the people who head out to the empty desert only to be surrounded by other people. Great crowds of people making as much ruckus as they can, going to the Burning Man or whatever. It seems like they could do all of that in a sports arena back in town or Coachella Polo Grounds, and it would all involve a lot less travel, a lot less hassle. Anyway... Enjoy your trip out to the desert and try to get as much quiet as you can, as many dark sky nights as you can. You're most likely to see wildlife in the early morning, so take some hikes when it's early. Beat the crowds, beat the heat, and take walks at dusk at night, especially in the winter when you don't have to watch for rattlesnakes. You might not see all the critters, but you'll hear them. You'll hear owls swooping past coyotes yipping uh, you'll have a good time go out there and enjoy the desert enjoy your public lands they belong to you not to a couple of mobsters from the Russian state oil company or whatever don't take any guff from these scumbags and pray to your favorite gods or aliens that justice shall be served Justice shall be served. Very large servings of justice. Oh, it will be a treat to watch that, won't it? I might even turn on the cable news. People will remember that like the moon landing or when Michael Jackson walked backwards on the TV. Wake up the kids, let them see and let them remember. Let them remember. The hand of fate and the scales of human justice always tilt against the evildoers, always. Sometimes it takes a little time. Sometimes we need to remember what Zeus said to the wagoneer who got stuck in the mud and pleaded to the gods for help. The gods help those who help themselves. Benjamin Franklin wrote that in what is now remembered as the very first editorial cartoon. One of the only good ones, too. 
And what it means is that while fate or luck or the general moral compass of the species may be discerned through subtle actions, Zeus is not going to reach down from Olympus and pull your wagon out of the mud. Zeus is not going to reach down from Olympus and strangle your oppressor. That can only be done with human hands. Or maybe a tic-tac stuck in your throat or something. It's really all a mystery. Now, depending on your background, you know, the family environment in which you grew up, etc., the idea of invoking a demon, of invoking an entity, maybe one of the old entities of the earth, well, that might sound distasteful. But you know, there's nothing more traditional than members of a community invoking a protector spirit, a protector that takes physical form now and again for the purposes of protecting a community, a resource, its ideals. Now, Native Americans in the Southwest have always had these beliefs that spirits or entities tied to the earth itself would make some places sacred and some places cursed. And you can find the same kinds of tales in the Old Testament or a Lovecraft story. And so it has been a goal in recent months to try to bring forth from the ethereal plane, if you will, a protector entity that would patrol this ancient valley and bring consequences to those who abuse the place. Now, what about... The consequences. What what consequences are we talking about? I believe intent is the factor here. And as the intent is to make these people leave as soon as possible before they can set the whole area ablaze with a careless and illegal campfire, send them on their way. The idea is you want them to go back to their friends go back to their slack chat rooms, their rock climber group text messages, and tell their friends and acquaintances and co-workers, do not go here. It is a cursed place at night. And so it was with some satisfaction that my friend John up in the rocks there on the other side in Panorama Heights, as he refuses to acknowledge his own neighborhood is called, well, he told me the happy news that some sort of yucca man had been seen in the area, running madly up and down the dirt roads in that sparsely populated neighborhood adjoining the nature preserve and then coming into the nature preserve. You know, there are theories about what the monster is or was... 
the dullest being that it is a long-haired man in the throes of delirium caused by ingestion of peyote or some other kind of intentional or accidental psychosis. Anyway, it's loose now. It is out there. It's out here. And people are trying to explain it in mundane terms. It seems like the more frustrated the people get around here, the more frustrated they get about the van conversions rolling into the nature preserve every weekend night because the occupants have decided they'll ignore the law here because they don't feel like paying $20 for a campsite or getting a motel room because they don't have campsite reservations in one of the busiest national parks. Well, it seems the angrier people get the more strange things seem to happen out here. Yeah, I tell people the truth. You don't want to be caught at night in a place where the hundreds of people living all around might wish very strongly that you weren't there. You don't want to be on the wrong end of that kind of mojo. Those types of mind rays. From the writer William S. Burroughs, I learned a lot about control. And you don't necessarily have to believe or buy into Burroughs' theory that language is a virus from outer space and that it took root in our species and ignored all the happier species because we were chosen to complete or participate in a program. The administration and management of this program is the control that Burroughs wrote about. What is interesting, watch your step here. What is interesting is how Burroughs learned to use some of these methods, these methods that seem to garner results, results from the subconscious. The experiment is this how can an individual or um, a small, physically powerless group reshape the control system to something either more just or perhaps more unjust? The intent. The intent shown in magic is what makes one a good or an evil magician. If your intent is to make people suffer, then you must be able to answer why. To make someone suffer as proof to yourself of your own abilities is evil. And it was Burroughs' conviction that ancient rituals and magic spells were of um, no particular value. No special value, anyway. If you studied them, if you practiced them, fine. That is a method that can work for you. Burroughs preferred use of whatever the society made available, especially in the inversion of top-down control systems. He had access to expensive cameras and sound recording and playback equipment. What a mobile phone can do today. Well, Burroughs famously forced a coffee bar out of business in the swinging 60s neighborhood of Soho in London. He was a polite and cultivated person, generally speaking, under most circumstances. And he was deeply offended by the cafe's treatment of him. He lived nearby, and he was a frequent customer. So at some point, the owners began to treat him with great disdain. 
He also believed they poisoned a piece of cheesecake that he got. When Burroughs gathered his tools for an operation in broad daylight on the sidewalk across the street from the cafe, he began photographing the cafe, its clientele. He began recording the sounds from the popular cafe and then playing the recordings back through a speaker over the present soundscape from across the street. Then he mixed in recordings of chaos, sirens, and honking horns, and an angry mob yelling. He mixes into the playback, barely audible, barely perceptible. Within a few weeks, business had dropped off at the once fashionable new coffee bar. Before long, there were no customers at all. The owners closed their business and gave up their lease. Now, here's something interesting. Right over here. There's a cactus wren nest up here in this pencil cholla. Usually the cactus wren makes its nest in the regular cholla, but it's not tall enough here, so the pencil cholla will do just fine. Just needs to be up high enough so that the coyotes can't eat the eggs out of the nest. We a month plus into 2018 already? And here I am still writing Put Ryan Zinke in prison on my checks. Uh, we had a fine time last night at the Ace Hotel down in Palm Springs. Our second to last campfire stories of the season. Oh, we had a beautiful night around the fire pit. It was good to see so many of you. You know, it was the biggest crowd we've had for our campfire stories, and I appreciate you coming out. And happy birthday to Kelly, who came all the way from Philadelphia to celebrate her 30th birthday at Desert Oracle Campfire Stories. We've got one more of these scheduled Thursday, March 1, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. It is free and open to all. Ace Hotel and Swim Club. But do not fear if you can't make this one, as we will be doing more events at the Ace later in the year. Then on March 17th, Saturday night up in Joshua Tree, Desert Oracle will be part of the Curate Joshua Tree's art show group art show event. I'm not sure what it's called, but it's Curate Joshua Tree. And they're doing that at Outpost Projects, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., and we might just do the radio show right there. Let's do it. Let's call it art. We'll have details and links for all of these events on our website, desertoracle.com. If you like the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram, we are there as well under duress, but we are there to serve the cause. And on April 24, that's at 6 p.m., downtown Palm Springs, come see Desert Oracle Radio Live at the Sublime Palm Springs Art Museum. It's on Thursday, and that means it's free. Just come on in, enjoy the museum and the sculpture garden. From Amboy to Zizix and across the great Mojave wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio. Broadcasting from KCDZ 107.7 in downtown Joshua Tree.
Friday nights at 10 p.m. And all the time on the podcast, thanks for listening and good night from the Voice of the Desert.